Feds provide $95 million towards Union Station upgrades. And I'll talk with Crane's residential real estate reporter, Dennis Rodkin, about news from the local housing market. It is true that the heavily regulated conditions in this state do slow down home building. That comes up in story after story after story I do. I talk to home builders and they say that places like Texas have fewer regulations that act as gates to building. I'm Amy Guth, and this is Crane's Daily Gist for Thursday, December 7th. Are you sick of not being your bank's top priority? We are too. At Wintrust, we take a different approach to banking. We're proud to be your one true banking partner focused on your unique financial goals that's right in your backyard. Whether you're opening your first account, buying a home, planning for the future, or starting a business, we have tailored solutions to get you there. Stop settling and start experiencing a better way to bank at Wintrust.com. Wintrust, different approach, better results. Banking products provided by Wintrust Financial. Financial Corporation Banks, member FDIC. I'm joined by Crane's residential real estate reporter, Dennis Rodkin, here to talk about news of the week from the local housing market. Hi, Dennis. How's it going? I'm great, Amy. How are you? I'm well, thank you. As ever, tons of things to talk about. We really like run the gamut of things this week. Sometimes we have a theme, but we're kind of all over it this week. So let's start by talking about the U.S. housing crisis and how you recently wrote about how if building lots of homes would kind of alleviate it, Illinois is not necessarily helping. Tell me about that. You know, uh, it's hard to read Fortune, Forbes, Wall Street Journal, all kinds of publications have been writing about how uh, one of America's crises right now is we're short about 6.5 million homes. That's not 6.5 million homes on the market we're missing 6.5 million homes. And uh, many people talk about how the way we can make housing more affordable is to build a lot more housing. Um, This is a bigger problem in places like California and Texas, but it does exist in Illinois. So if the nation is short about 6.5 million homes, we really need to build a lot. Well, a uh, a new data source that I really like that we can talk about in a minute, uh, Resi Club, came out with data this week that ranked the states, the 50 states, by how many new units of housing they built in a given time. It was July 21 to July 2022. Uh, And Illinois came out at the bottom. Illinois, uh, New Jersey, and Rhode Island all built in that one-year period. They grew their housing supply by 0.2%. That's compared to there are six states that grew their housing supply by 10 times that. Utah, the highest, grew its housing supply by 3.3%. Even that wasn't enough. Utah's population is growing so fast that they're still running behind. But Utah, Idaho, Texas, and I don't have the other three in front of me, six states are building at 10 times the pace of Illinois, uh, New Jersey, and Rhode Island. They're building 2% or more a year. We're building building 0.2% a year. Um, This is not a huge surprise. You and I talk uh, once a quarter and other times as well about data from Tracy Cross and Associates, which is here studying the home building industry here. And uh, it's been suppressed. The most recent report, third quarter 2023, showed that it was they were very strong by comparison to recent quarters, in part because there's so little existing inventory 
on the market that new homes have become more appealing to people. But even so, that's relative to, to recent quarters. In 2021, home builders sold more than 5,000 homes in the course of the year for the first time since 2008. And in those years before 2008, they were selling 25,000 new homes at a time. Um, it's, it's been weighed down, and there are a lot of reasons for that. But um, one of the things we simply don't see is a lot of new home construction. Of course, the demand is stronger in places like Utah, Idaho, Texas. Their populations are growing faster. Ours has been mostly flat. We've grown by about 2% in a decade. The state of Illinois has grown by about 2% in a decade. Those places have far higher demand for homes of any kind, whether new or existing. But um, we are lagging way behind on building new homes in Illinois. Hmm. And, and I mean, there's so many reasons we could sit here and map out that, and many of which we've talked about, right? There's inflation, the cost of materials, there's demand that you just mentioned, things like that. Um, there's no real way to kind of read the tea leaves of when that cycle might end, what might shift. Um, so what, you know, what, what's to be done there? Is it just a matter of kind of watching how the states that are booming, watching what they're doing and seeing how the numbers unfold? Or, or is there something else that, that people are doing to try to create, alleviate some of the housing issues in other places? Well, a lot of what's going on in other states, we have tried smaller versions of, like uh, you and I have talked about changing zoning so that single family homes are not the only thing allowed throughout vast swaths of many cities and suburbs, making it so that Um, more sites could have multifamily homes uh, on them than already do, building tiny homes, building ADUs, accessory dwelling units. But really, the answer is just building more. And one of the things holding it back, you mentioned uh, cost of materials and that sort of thing. Cost of labor is higher in Illinois than in a lot of other states. But it's also true that governments need to incentivize building. Illinois is a high-regulation state. And I'm not going to sit here and argue that we need to throw away all our regulations, but it is true that the heavily regulated conditions in this state do slow down home building. That comes up in story after story after story I do. I talk to home builders and they say that places like Texas have fewer regulations that act as gates to building. Um, And I think the other thing we need to do is sit down as a country and say, uh, housing has really become an issue. What can we do to open those gates and get a lot more built? Sure, sure, definitely. Well, that's a a bigger story that we can unpack over many years of podcasting, I'm sure. Um, But talk to me for now about, I feel like this is a a big right hand, like a big hard right turn, but um, tell me about what $6.2 million will buy in Winneka right now. There's no smooth segue between those two things. $6.2 million will buy you one house. This is an interesting property. It's on Hill Road in Winnetka, sold December 1st for $6.2 million. It had been on the market for $7 million. And I'm fascinated for a couple of reasons. First, I should say it's the third highest sale price in Winnetka this year. The two above it were, this was $6.2 million. The two above it were both over $12 million. Those are lakefront Sheridan Road homes we have discussed here. Um, for the metro area, it's the 13th highest price of the year. And you know that we're coming close to the end of the year when I'm going to put that final list together. But one of the things that I find interesting about this place is um, built in the 30s, heavily, re- I'm sorry, built in the 1930s, heavily rehabbed in the 2010s, 
And what I don't know is if the rehab was um, an alternative to tearing it down. It appears to have been. Uh, I, I was not able to reach the sellers, and I also was not able to reach the real estate agent who represented both the sellers and the buyers. So there are some gaps in my knowledge, but I do know that uh, Winnetka's Landmarks Preservation Council in 2022 gave this and some other houses awards, uh, gave the owners of these houses awards for choosing to rehab instead of tearing down. If this house had been torn down, it really would have been a loss. Um, I said built in the 1930s. It was built by S.S. Beeman, who was an architect and the son of Solon Spencer Beeman, who was the architect of Pullman and, and a lot of Christian science churches, as we've discussed and I think are going to discuss later. Um, S.S. Beeman built a lot of uh, houses and other buildings in Winnetka. It's a grand old house. It's got this beautiful sort of French look with a gravel drive out front. In 2013, it was sold for just under $2.8 million. Um, the buyers at that time in 2013 are the sellers at this time in 2023. And as I said, I would like to have spoken to them because, boy, did they redo this house nicely. It's really, really sharp. You've seen the photos. Um, the work was done by um, Jay Lawton Thice, an architect in the city. And the house is just, I don't use a word like this often, it's exquisite. From this really wonderful wallpaper in the foyer that looks like lattice work to the beautiful cabana building outside by the pool with a fireplace and a kitchen in it. Um, it's everywhere you look in this house, something has been done really, really well. I'm not 100% sure what's new and what's rehab. The listing did say that it was extensively rehabbed, so it may be that everything I'm complimenting is new, but I don't know that for sure. Really a gorgeous house. And as I said, there's a cabana, so that must mean there's a pool. There's 1.3 acres there. And then the other thing that I think is fascinating is two pretty important business figures live there. Um, these owners, who uh, these recent owners, the people who just sold it this week in 2023, in 2013 bought it from Don Perkins, who had owned it uh, since the 1970s. He was the CEO of Jewel and kind of a big deal on both the business and philanthropic scene. Um, he owned it from 1978 to 2013. And uh, back in the 40s and 50s, there's this guy, Edwin Maynard, who owned it with his wife, Betty. And there's, there's actually a Time Magazine story about him because he shorted wheat. He was a commodities trader. He shorts wheat, I think it was... Uh, 10,000 bushels in such a way that not only does the Chicago Board of Trade drop dramatically, but the stock market drops dramatically. Wow. And it's so bad that the U.S. Secretary of Agriculture says, hey, look into this. And as Time Magazine said, the trail leads to the office of Edwin Maynard in uh, the Board of Trade building in Chicago, who said, no, I, I had no insider information. I wasn't manipulating the market. I was just watching the market really closely. And I figured out this short strategy. Um, and then, you know, all these markets fall as a result. So it's got a business history as well as an architectural history and a renovation. I, I love a house with a good story behind it. Yeah. And this one has several. Right. Yeah. This has layers and indeed photos at chicagobusiness.com. So go check those out and you can see this very beautiful home. All right. Um, so talk to me now about how in a dispute over a restoration, 
a foundation is leaving a landmark Oak Park mansion. Speaking of exquisite homes, this is Pleasant Home, which is a phenomenal old prairie style home built in 1897, designed by George Washington Mayer for the Farsons, uh, Mamie and John Farson. It's called Pleasant Home because it's on the corner of Pleasant and Home Streets in Oak Park. Just absolutely fabulous. And many people who are architecture fans in the Chicago area have walked through it at some point. Uh, It's been owned by the Oak Park Park District since 1939. And since 1990, it's been sort of managed for the Park District by the Pleasant Home Foundation. Last April, we talked about the Pleasant Home Foundation and the Park District being at loggerheads over some restoration. The Park District was redoing the floors and took out and chopped up and discarded flooring from 1897. Some architects discovered this, raised the roof over this because this was original building material to this house. And there was a question of, did it have to be discarded, et cetera. Um, Several people resigned from the Pleasant Home Foundation because they felt that the park district wasn't really a good partner to work with. So that's April. Come forward to late November and the Pleasant Home Foundation, which again has been housed in Pleasant Home since 1990, announces uh, last day of November is our last tour. End of December, we're out of here. So I called because I thought, hmm, wonder if this is connected to the flooring issue. It is connected to the flooring issue. Um, The two parties, the park district and the foundation, have disagreed over renovations. Um, It gets far more complicated. There's there's a question of who did this and who did that and, and which materials you should keep. But generally what it comes down to is the park district said, are you going to help us with these renovations? Are you going to oversee these renovations in the way you have in the past? And the foundation said, well, no, because we can't get architects to work with us anymore. So in renewing its lease, the foundation said to the park district that it wanted to have written into its lease, essentially veto power, a a kind of oversight over the renovations. The park district said, no, Park District owns the building and has final authority on on rehab. And so as a result, the foundation leaves. Um, It's a little backstage. It's a little sort of inside baseball that they're fighting. But one of the things to keep in mind is this, the foundation has been the group that has really sort of safeguarded the history and image of Pleasant Home for a very long time. And what they thought is if we leave, the Park District is going to sort of be, you know, up a crick. But what the Park District said is, no, we have we already have made an agreement with some of the um, docents who worked for the foundation. Tours are going to continue. Um, so it appears that all will be well at Pleasant Home, but we're going to have to follow this unpleasantness at Pleasant Home for a little while because right. it might mean that, you know, there aren't tours or that there are further arguments about materials in the building. We'll see. Wow. I thought it was valid to get into uh, for the story and here on the podcast why these two parties are are at odds. It's over the quality of restoration. We don't have a lot of restoration soap operas here on the podcast, but... But if there is one, I'm on it. But if there is one, I know that you will bring us all the details. All right, well, let's talk about two other historic properties. Actually, three. We've got, we've got a few to talk about. But first, let's talk about how a historian found two early Frank Lloyd Wright houses have a sibling connection. Yes, I love this story. This is just so fascinating. Um, So over the course of the past several years, I've written about two different 
well, several, but two different Frank Lloyd Wright houses have been in the news. One is the Foster House in West Pullman. Um, a lot of people have seen it. It has it has sort of a flared roof. Some people refer to it as having sort of a Japanese influence. Um, it was for sale for quite a while, bought several years ago by somebody who was going to do a lot of rehab. It was built in 1900. Later, I was doing stories on the Bagley House in Hinsdale, built in 1894, and just a few years ago, put on the market um, sort of half-heartedly as a demolition candidate. And then uh, two people from Ohio rushed in to buy it and save it and launched a big renovation program. That's the Bagley House in Hinsdale. The other one is the Foster House uh, in West Pullman. They're built six years apart. So Bagley House is being restored. Um, the, the owners hire a couple of historians to research everything they can find about the Bagley House. One of the historians, Julia Backrack, is looking into the owners. What I said in the story is she just kept pulling on threads. And what she found is that Grace Bagley, one of the owners of the Bagley House, and Almeida Foster, one of the owners of the Foster House, were sisters. This was never known before because it's the 19th and very early 20th century. They're using married names. And one thing to keep in mind is Frank Lloyd Wright isn't famous at that point. So who commissioned the houses just kind of disappears into uh, the background. And then half a century later, when people are uh, researching his homes, all you see is Bagley and Foster. You don't know there's a connection. So Julia Backrack found that it was sisters who had these two houses made. Both of these were second homes. In both cases, the couple lived nearer to downtown Chicago, and both West Pullman and Hinsdale were sites of second homes. Almeida Foster probably spent time in Grace Bagley's second home in Hinsdale before getting right to design a house for her and her new husband in 1900. So why is this significant? The pleasant home thing was a similar question. Is this just a piece of trivia? And I checked around and some Frank Lloyd Wright experts said, no, you know, this is actually pretty significant, because, a, a good discovery, a significant discovery, because right when he built the first one, the Hinsdale one in 1894, he's 27 years old. He's just been canned by Lewis Sullivan. Most people in Chicago know that story. He's striking out on his own. He's not yet recognized as, you know, an architectural genius who can build the Guggenheim Museum. He's this young guy trying to support his family, trying to start a business. Well, who were the people who were helping him support his business? And as it turns out, these two sisters, Grace and Almeida, um, were two of the people who did. So it's just, if, if you care about sort of our architectural patrimony in the Chicago area, it's an interesting piece to add that uh, a house in West Pullman and a house in Hinsdale have this sibling connection. I love that. That's another great story attached to housing. Yeah. And neither of these is for sale. I mean, these are real estate stories, but the houses aren't for sale. They have been in recent years. And it, as it happens, it's the sale of the Bagley house that ultimately ends up causing this information to, become, to come back to the surface. Yeah. How interesting. Let's shift to another house with a lot of history to it um, and some recent news. And that is how a fire has damaged a 19th century meatpackers mansion in Bronzeville. Yeah, this is a, a far sadder story than the other ones yeah. we've talked about. So the Swift Mansion is at 4500 South Michigan. It's called the Swift Mansion, even though the couple who lived there originally were the Morrises. Helen Swift was in the Swift meatpacking dynasty. Her husband, Edward Morris, was in, we know of um, Swift and Armor. We use those names all the time. But there was a third big meat company, Morris. 
So it's a member of the Swift dynasty marrying a member of the Morris dynasty. And for their wedding gift, Mr. Swift gives them this gigantic stone house at 45th and Michigan. As one does. As one does. Yeah. And one thing to keep in mind is that this would have been very close to the stockyards. There was a lot of um, the Swift and Armour and other housing was within range of the stockyards. So they built it in uh, 1897. For the past half century, it has been home to uh, two uh, pretty significant Black nonprofits. From the 1960s through the 80s, it was where the Urban League was headquartered. The Urban League eventually outgrows this mansion and moves next door into a, a new office building. It's built by John Matusami, a very important Black architect in Chicago. And what moves in is a foundation. It's called the Inner City Youth and Adult Foundation. And what they're doing, this couple running the foundation, um, is essentially helping recently incarcerated people relaunch their lives and other people who need to get back into uh, regular life. Um, So it became a place for training and other opportunities, as well as to house people who can't find housing while they're trying to make this transition. That So that foundation moves in in 1996. This does become a real estate story briefly. Um, in 2017, I was there when it was for sale for $1.3 million. It had been on and off the market since 2008. It eventually doesn't sell. The couple who ran the foundation um, didn't sell it. And what I've learned since the fire is that this fall, ownership transferred from them to their son and his wife. This was, had not been reported because it was just sort of an in-the-family deal. And then he applied for a renovation permit, removed drywall, replaced drywall. That's all the pre-story to what happened this past weekend, which is the house burst into flames. On Sunday, news channels burst forth with news that fire started in that building, was put out, started again a few hours later and was put out. When you see the photos and you see the video, you can see the devastation. Um, we had photos taken by Alderman Pat Dowell, who went to the scene. And, you know, that's this giant three-story stone house. And essentially, its whole roof is gone. Its whole third floor is gone. Um, it was really alarming. Nobody yet knows uh, exactly what the cause is. City fire officials launched an arson investigation. That doesn't mean it's arson. That means they're looking to see if it was arson. And um, it's going to be a while before we find out what happens. But it's really sad because this house has history with Chicago's meatpacking industry, history with these two important black groups that have been in there for the past half a century. Um, And one of the things Alderman Dowell said that we had in our story is we just don't know what will still be available from that building. There was incredible wood trim on the main floor. Was that damaged? Seems like maybe not because most of the damage was on the, or the, the fire was primarily on the third floor, but we're going to have to see. And then after the fire, Lee Bay at the Sun-Times reported that the city has to inspect the foundation and find out if it's damaged enough that the house would end up being a demolition candidate. That would really take it to uh, a whole new level of sadness. We could lose this remarkable house. Again, it stood through, you know, it's from this Gilded Age and then uh, in Bronzeville, it becomes a very different kind of a landmark. And then fire in 2023. Right. Like this house feels like it's been so much to so many. Yeah, exactly. To lose it just seems extra, extra sad and extra difficult. The, the, the prospect of it maybe not being salvageable. 
And in a neighborhood where we've lost so much in Bronzeville, where there has been so much lost over the course of time. And we've reached a point where we're much more preservation minded about a neighborhood like that. But then who knows how this one will, um, will pan out. Yeah, that's right. Well, we'll have to check back in on that one as you know more. All right. Well, another one in in history. Talk to me about uh, a Ravenswood church that is for sale as a residential site again, though it's unclear how many units that residential site might be. Right. Um, And before I do, can I say you said we don't have a theme this week, but I'm just realizing how many historical (laughs) properties without even intending to cover. My beat is not preservation. It's real estate. But there's been a lot of this. Uh, So there's a, a church in Ravenswood, Philadelphia, Romanian church. Originally, 105 years ago, built as the 14th Christian Science Church in Chicago. It's been for sale for several years, went off the market because of a deal that fell apart with one developer, came back on the market recently, and the listing specifically says you could build 48 units according to the alderman, or what it actually says is according to ALD. So I called the listing agent and said, so the alderman has actually said you can build 48 units there? And the listing agent said, yes, that's from the alderman. So I called the alderman who said, uh, yeah, that is not what we said. The alderman's <laughs> no. office said, we have not approved 48 units. I mean, that, that's just not how it works in Chicago. Uh, the previous project had been about 70 units. Neighbors had pushed back. Uh, uh, neighbors had pushed back. It seemed too dense. It was mostly studios. And what they thought is that you need more family size housing in Ravenswood. So that development just kind of fizzled. Um, and the pastor told me that they're back on the market because they have now bought another church site farther west, smaller and less expensive to maintain. So they really need to get this sold. So they have put it back on the market at $4.9 million. Their agent listed it as being able to build 48 units. But anybody who has lived in a Chicago neighborhood really ends up finding out that um, you know, all of that is subject to question. Yeah, that's right. There's community input. There are all sorts of there's zoning and other things. And so one of the questions we're going to have is, I would think that most buyers who would be serious developers would go in and say, okay, I'm not assuming 48 units because I'm sophisticated enough to know. But it is sort of noteworthy that the listing actually provides a unit count that the alderman will not back up. Right. So an alderman, but not that alderman, maybe. <laughs> Some alderman somewhere. The alderman of my dreams, said. <laughs> right. Yeah. right. Interesting. All right. Well, now talk to me about these two East Garfield Park houses that both sold for upward of $950,000 each. New houses after all those historic preservation yeah. stories. Yeah. So this was kind of interesting. Um, two houses on Monroe Street. Uh, sold for over $950,000 each, one for $955 and one for $975. I should say that in a technical sense, these houses aren't in East Garfield Park. The The boundary of the neighborhood is a few, is about a block west of them, but they're also not in, they're not in the West Loop, which is the neighborhood next door. Uh, and the builder who grew up in the neighborhood and others all referred to it as East Garfield Park. Anyway, um, two contemporary homes built in the 20... 200 block of Monroe, one sold for 955, one for 975. You know, I'm unlikely to write a story saying, here are houses on the market for nearly a million dollars in a place where it's been rare for things to sell for a million. But these have actually sold for nearly a million dollars in a neighborhood that is, as I said, west of the West Loop, 
where these houses are is about three blocks west of the United Center. It's a really nice area. When you wander around in there, almost anybody knows you find these great 19th century row houses that have been preserved, but you also find a lot of empty lots. And these two were built on empty lots. I had a really interesting conversation with Melvin Bailey, one of the developers of these houses, because he said, you know, we're not gentrifiers. We're filling up lots that have been vacant, which adds to not only to the beauty of the neighborhood, but to the safety of the neighborhood when you fill vacant lots. The other thing he's, he's doing is he's not only building up at that $950,000 level, he built condos that sold in the 400s, and he's building homes that, uh, that are designed to be affordable uh, in the neighborhood that with city subsidies will sell in the $290,000 range. So he's sort of trying to serve everybody in the neighborhood. Yes, the buyers, I spoke to the buyers of both of these houses. They are imports to the neighborhood. They're both coming from South Loop neighborhoods. They're not moving from within the neighborhood, but they're also there because of what they see as the future. You know, they see the West Loop moving westward, and they also see these historical homes where people have lived for decades and um, they want to be a part of it. So it's, um, it's an interesting project. They have only those two. Those are sold. They may build more because the real estate agent told me they had a lot of interest. They did sell quickly. Uh, so we may see more from this builder, Melvin Bailey, in the future. Indeed. All right. Well, let's go to River North now because we have two condos to talk about. Um, one, we just really have to talk about the visuals. One, we need to talk about the visuals and quite the backstory of residents. So let's start with the one with just the visuals. Yeah. Oh, this is in a building that I actually watched being built in the early 2000s. It's called Erie on the Park. Lucien Lagrange, a pretty popular architect of condominium towers in the early 2000s, still working. But at that time, he was building um, sort of Francophile buildings on Lakeshore Drive and elsewhere. But he builds this contemporary building on this site in River North, when River North is really sort of, uh, this is the early 2000s, it's really sort of emerging as a residential neighborhood, having been an art gallery neighborhood. And he builds this very contemporary looking building. One of the things the developer did is uh, they guaranteed that the Western views will be uh, preserved by buying the air rights to the low rise building next door. Two condos in this building actually have terraces that sit right out on top of the next door building. This is this condo we're talking about is one of them. The point of that is your view is not going to change. Views often are not guaranteed in Chicago. This one is pretty guaranteed. The air rights have been sold and the building was built in such a way that it'd be very difficult to take the other one down. Anyway, really, so the building is glass and steel, really great looking building. Um, I found an old article from when it was built where Blair Kamen of the Chicago Tribune described it as Little John because it's got the braces visible like Big John, the Hancock, <laughs> where you're so it's so famous for having all those braces visible. And one of those is visible in the primary bedroom of this condo. So you've got this nice big terrace. I said it sits on the roof of the other building, but it's also big. There's space for dining, cooking lounging, having a garden. It's a big terrace. And then inside, you've got a bedroom with sort of a glimpse of the architectural features of the building. This brace crosses it, and the sellers told me they really enjoyed it. So again, you're looking west and south. You don't have a lake view, but you've got people going up and down the north branch. That's tour boats, kayaks, crew teams, 
Um, the park right below them, uh, named for Montgomery Ward, is, I remember too, when it opened, is a nice piece of green space that dogs and families and children are always in. So it's a very sort of activated area. And then you also see um, that it's a beautiful bridge that the Ontario feeder ramps go over. May not be fun to drive on the Ontario feeder ramps, but it's a very nice bridge. It's a it's a nice location. They are asking 1.17 million for it. It's a really interesting place. It was so it was essentially their second home. They live in Downers Grove. Their kids were living in River North. Their adult kids were living in River North. So they got a weekend place to be near the kids. Uh, and now the kids have grown up, had kids, uh, and this is not big enough to entertain both to entertain three generations, including grandchildren. So one of the things they said to me is, while a lot of people at our age, late 50s, are downsizing, we're upsizing. They're getting a bigger place to host family. Sure, sure. All right. Well, let's move to this other River North condo. A little bit different story there, but there's a rainbow wall. So that's a thing. <laughs> let's start with that. This place is crazy. And uh, it has been circulating on the internet for quite a while now because it looks so nuts. It's in a building on Grand, a 19th century building on Grand. It's on two levels. And I think one of the things, well, aside from the rainbow wall, one of the things that attracts people's attention is it's just these giant loft size rooms with nothing in them anymore. So like, was this a club? Was it a dance hall? Who knows? As it turns out, it has a very interesting history. Uh, a guy buys it in 1996. And in, the, in about 2009, the Tribune starts reporting on him and some others who were involved in a real estate scheme. Essentially, what it comes down to is in Cook County, there's the scavenger tax sale operated by the Cook County treasurer, where if you haven't paid your property taxes, I can essentially buy those taxes. And then if you don't redeem them, I can petition to get ownership to your property. This guy was running a fake version of that, where... He was selling you what you thought were the rights to property taxes on churches and funeral homes and houses, and it was all just made out of thin air. So the Justice Department prosecuted him. He went to jail in 2011 for nine years, and this place has sat empty ever since. It's been for sale since 2005. It was for sale conventionally at about $2.9 million. In 2022, there was a judicial sale, a court-ordered sale of the property back to the lender. And the lender, so I said it was for sale at nearly 2.9 several years ago. Uh, the lender has been bringing the price down, 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 down for the past several months. It's now under $700,000. This guy bought it in 2000, 23 years ago, for a little under $1.2 million, And it's offered at six ninety nine. Wow. So what do you get for that? Um, you get this rainbow, this wall of glass yes, block. Yes, you do. <laughs> glass block, of course, being super 90s. Yeah. And it lights up like a rainbow. Um, it's There's this giant fireplace a uh, fireplace wall of river rock. And as I said, there are just these gigantic rooms. One of the things I found is, so it has a street front. It, it may at some point have been retail space. And one of the things I found is if you go back through Google Maps, you can go through the layers and see what something looked like a year ago, five years ago. There are these heavy drapes that have been closed on this property since 2009 in all the images of Google Maps. So it may have been empty the entire time. Um, it certainly hasn't been used in several years, and it's going to need some rehab. I mean, please keep the rainbow wall just for historic purposes. <laughs> right, because it's really the fun. The floors are kind of scraped up, and but it's it's like a giant 
loft space on two levels. He was using it for live and work. And um, it's going to be really interesting to see if it does. I mean, now the, the price is so low that it probably will sell. And it would be interesting to see if it becomes uh, another live workspace or what. Right, right. Yeah, again, head to chicagobusiness.com and look at these photos because you're exactly right. I mean, like there's one photo of the fireplace and it sort of has like a stage area built in front of it. Like you can see how someone could, you know, put, put like couches and have this cozy little area around the fireplace. But it's so big, it looks like a theater. It looks yeah, like you a need little... like five couches. Yeah, and yeah, then there's so yeah. much floor around it. It seems like you could put seats there and just have a little community theater production or something. It's it's so interesting. And the bathroom, I'm not real sure what I'm looking at because there's so many mirrors. It becomes infinity mirror of infinity mirror. Yeah, there's a lot going on there. But... And then the kitchen has this big sort of crescent shape of of cabinets with a countertop. It I, it's I don't huge. know. I mean, it, to me, it just looks like somebody in the '90s. Yeah. Early 2000s was really living large. Give me a wall of glass block and light it like a rainbow. Give me Why not? gigantic <laughs> fireplace wall. Give me uh, right. a bathroom full of mirrors. Right. And and a kitchen so big I can roller skate around it. Let's do that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. Well, you can roller skate around this whole place now because it's empty and it looks, you know, it's got those big wood floors. It kind of looks like an old roller rink. I know, right? There's a lot going on there. Well, it'll be interesting to see if it if it trades. All right. Well, what's coming up in the week ahead? You know, I'm looking at a couple of things that aren't residential real estate. One is this really fascinating installation done um, about Chicago history by one of the most prominent Chicago architects working today, a woman named Carol Ross Barney. And um, we'll have that story out in a while. And it, it's it's a pretty cool thing she's done. Nice. Very good. All right. Well, We'll talk about it in an upcoming episode. Thanks so much, Dennis. Thanks, Amy. Coming up, what to know about Illinois' assault weapons ban. We'll talk about that and more right after this. You are the one who can help end hunger. The Greater Chicago Food Depository is working to meet the need, but the cost of food remains high, and many of your neighbors are struggling to afford groceries. Children are at greatest risk, with one in four facing hunger. Your neighbors are counting on you. Families, seniors on fixed incomes, veterans, you are the one who can help them. Give what you can. The Greater Chicago Food Depository, chicagosfoodbank.org. This is the Crane's Daily Gist with Amy Guth. Crane's Justin Lawrence reported that Chicago has been awarded $95 million for long-sought improvements to Union Station that will help renovate and expand the station's platforms, repair aging ventilation systems, and add capacity to get more trains into the station. The funding, Lawrence reported, will come in two buckets. $45 million will go towards track improvements to transform an area previously used for mail service, which has been out of service for nearly two decades, to handle an anticipated expansion of rail service in the Midwest. Another $44 million will fund platform expansions and help pay for ventilation upgrades. The grants will be provided by the U.S. Department of Transportation's Federal Railroad Administration to Amtrak, which owns Union Station through a subsidiary and worked with Senators Dick Durbin and Tammy Duckworth to apply for the grants. Lawrence noted in reporting that the funding came from the Federal Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act and the grants were announced by Durbin, Duckworth and Representative Mike Quigley on Wednesday morning. Lawrence also reported that the $95 million is short of the $251 million that Midwest leaders were looking for as part of a first round of funding requests. Also noting that Amtrak and local leaders are seeking as much federal help possible for $850 million in renovations to the station. 
Lawrence further noted that the push for the grant was a joint effort by Illinois stakeholders, Amtrak, and other Midwest leaders as part of an effort to improve and expand rail service in the region. Bloomberg reported that CME Group, the world's largest regulated foreign exchange marketplace, is launching a new spot currency trading platform aimed at providing better liquidity across a wider pool of currency pairs connecting cash and futures markets. Bloomberg noted in reporting that the Spot Plus trading platform will be available for client testing in the second half of next year and will give spot traders access to extra liquidity from the group's currency futures trading business, a potential boost to volumes which have dried up as industry competition increases. The product is aimed at completing CME's existing EBS spot trading platform, the primary venue for trading the euro, Japanese yen, and Swiss franc against the U.S. dollar by bridging the gap to the wider pool of liquidity CME's FX futures business has across 40 currency pairs. Bloomberg noted in reporting that currency trading activity on CME's EBS platform rebounded in November from a two-year low but remains at historically low levels, with volume down 17% year-over-year. Demand for CME's FX futures and options has remained resilient, with the average daily volumes of contracts up 2% year-over-year in November. A spokesperson for the company also said the launch marks a key step in realigning CME's FX products into one single unit following its acquisition of EBS in 2018. Find more reporting on this story and many others at chicagobusiness.com. Bloomberg reported that McDonald's is aiming to hit the 50,000 location mark around the world by 2027 in what the company is calling the fastest expansion period in its history. McDonald's currently has more than 41,000 restaurants and already committed to opening an extra 2,000 by the end of the year. Some of the new restaurants will likely be delivery or drive through only, but the vast majority will have the traditional McDonald's format that includes dining areas, according to an interview with CEO Chris Kamzinski. McDonald's said in a statement Wednesday that New restaurant openings are expected to boost sales generated by franchised and company-owned stores by 2% next year and by 2.5% each year after 2024. The company also said it expects sales by that metric, known as system-wide sales, to reach $130 billion this year, with the U.S. alone surpassing $50 billion. The expanded footprint is part of a multi-year growth plan that includes a renewed marketing push, improvements to core menu offerings, and digital channels, including delivery, the mobile app, and kiosks. Chicago-based McDonald's plans 900 new restaurants in the U.S. by 2027 and another 1,900 in international markets where the company operates and franchises locations. CFO Ian Borden said Wednesday in a presentation to investors that McDonald's plans 900 new restaurants in the U.S. by 2027 and another 1,900 in international markets where the company operates and franchises restaurants. And he said that about 7,000 will be opened in countries where licensees and affiliates run the restaurants. Bloomberg reported that McDonald's also looks to increase users of its loyalty program by 250 million 90-day active customers by 2027 from about 150 million currently. It's targeting an additional $25 billion in system-wide sales, which include both franchised and company-owned stores from loyalty program users over the same period. That compares with about $20 billion now. McDonald's U.S. President Joe Erlinger said loyalty members in the U.S. and Canada spend twice as much on average as other guests and said that U.S. loyalty members visit 15 percent more frequently. Bloomberg also reported that the company sees operating margins in the mid to high 40 percent range in 2024, which is similar to the last two quarters, followed by continued expansion in subsequent years. It's forecasting capital expenditures of $1.5 billion next year and sequential increases of about $300 million to $500 million each year through 2027.
Capital News Illinois reported that gun owners face a January 1st deadline to register their assault weapons with the state under Illinois' assault weapons law. But between lawsuits and ongoing policymaking, the exact guns, accessories, and ammunition covered under the law, called the Protect Illinois Communities Act, remain unclear to many gun rights advocates. Capital News Illinois noted that the assault weapons ban went into effect when Governor J.B. Pritzker signed it in January of 2023, immediately prohibiting the sale in Illinois of a long list of weapons and attachments. But Illinois residents who own assault weapons, a term that itself is contentious among gun advocates, can keep them so long as they purchase them before the law went into effect and register them with the Illinois State Police before the end of the year. Capital News noted that at the end of November, with four weeks before the deadline, nearly 4,900 people had filed disclosures with ISP. Owners of now-banned firearms, accessories, and ammunition face criminal penalties if they fail to file that disclosure paperwork. The law is wide-ranging and affects a variety of firearms and accessories, most notably weapons based on the design of the AR-15. The law classifies more than 170 different models of firearms as assault weapons. The statute also lists several general types of weapons under its definition of assault weapon, including AK-type and AR-15-type rifles. But as Capital News also noted, a lot of the confusion surrounding the law centers on the fact that it also restricts features that would classify a gun otherwise acceptable under the law as an assault weapon. These include thumbhole, folding, telescoping, and detachable stocks, pistol grips on rifles, flash suppressors, grenade launchers, barrel shrouds that allow users to hold the barrel without being burned, and the capacity to accept ammunition belts. Accessories that would give an otherwise unregulated firearm one or more of these features are regulated as so-called assault weapons attachments, and they also require a disclosure with state police. Pistols are also restricted if they have a threaded barrel, a second grip, the capacity to accept magazines outside of the grip, and shoulder stocks. Revolving cylinder shotguns are restricted as well as semi-automatic shotguns that have the capacity to accept a detachable magazine or a fixed magazine with more than five rounds. And as Capital News also noted, any firearm that's been modified with aftermarket accessories to achieve the same effect as the state's definition of an assault weapon would still be considered prohibited. This means that a collection of parts that could convert a firearm into an assault weapon, for example, an unregulated pistol and conversion kit, would be considered an assault weapon, even if the kit is unassembled. Ammunition feeding devices are also regulated by the Act, but in a slightly less strict fashion than weapons. The law bans so-called large-capacity magazines, which it defines as being 15 or more rounds for pistols and 10 or more rounds for rifles. While banned, owners of large-capacity magazines don't need to file a disclosure. And as Capital News also noted, if a gun owner moves to Illinois from a state where they legally owned firearms or accessories banned under the Illinois law, they have to file an endorsement affidavit with the state police within 60 days of moving to the state. This applies to owners of assault weapon attachments, even if they do not own an assault weapon. Local law enforcement agencies and state police are responsible for enforcing the assault weapons law in the same manner they currently enforce other regulations, like the rules around FOID cards. And as Capital News also reported, penalties for violating the law vary. Carrying or possessing an assault weapon is a Class A misdemeanor. That's generally punishable by up to a year in jail or a fine of about $2,500. Manufacturing, selling, delivering, and purchasing those weapons, however, is a Class Three felony. And that's generally punishable with 5 to 10 years in prison and fines of up to $25,000. A second or subsequent possession charge is considered a Class Two felony, which is generally punishable by 3 to 7 years in prison and, again, a fine of up to $25,000. Manufacturing, possessing, selling, or importing Hoarding assault weapons accessories and kits is also considered a Class II felony. Specific cases may vary in their sentencing. 
And as Capital News further reported, while the law bans the sale and possession of large-capacity magazines, owners don't need to file a disclosure if they had those magazines prior to January 10th of this year. For a brief period of six days this spring, an injunction temporarily halted enforcement of the assault weapons law. Anyone who purchased a regulated weapon after January 10th of this year, including during that window, is in violation of the law. Find all these details laid out and more reporting on the law at chicagobusiness.com. That's Crane's Daily just for now. Check in on our continuous news feed at chicagobusiness.com. Thanks so much to today's guest, Crane's residential real estate reporter, Dennis Rodkin. You can follow all of our conversations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to get your audio on demand. Don't forget to subscribe and please rate and review Crane's Daily Gist. Our show is produced by Todd Manley at Earsight Studios. I'm Amy Guth. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll meet you right back here next time. Want to dive deeper into the topics you've heard here? Read the full stories and get access to all of Crane's award-winning coverage with a Crane's Chicago Business subscription. Crane's Daily Gist listeners can get 20% off a one-year Crane's Chicago Business digital subscription by visiting chicagobusiness.com slash gist and using promo code gist at checkout. Once again, to redeem this offer, visit chicagobusiness.com slash gist and enter code gist to get this deal while it lasts.